So this morning we continue this series on the kingdom counterculture, on what Jesus says it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. It's kind of the big picture theme of his sermon on the mount. And this morning we finished the last of this kind of theme of it's deeper than. And we've been looking at these last several messages on this idea of it's deeper than just what had been taught and what, what the, the law said to the heart of the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And so the law still stands, but in Jesus' day, many of them, many of the, his listeners and the teachers were not really teaching what it meant, the heart of it. They were just teaching the letter of it, not the spirit of it. And so in these last messages, we've been talking about this idea that it's deeper than just, and today it's retaliation and enemies. Sermon notes are in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, there'll be some fill-ins on the notes, but then some extra notes on the screen if you want to follow along that way. As I think about this message, I was reminded this week of my eight-year-old self playing all-star baseball. And as I played all-star baseball as an eight-year-old, it was the first time that I had ever had a coach who yelled and criticized. You know, there's, there's yelling that can be constructive. Well, this yelling was not constructive. It was degrading. It was a criticizing. And this coach was known for that, but he was the eight-year-old all-star coach that I had. And so it was the first time I'd ever run up against a coach like this. And one of, the, one of the times in the first practice, we were having fly ball practice. And so we were in the outfield, and the coach was hitting fly balls to us, and he hit one to me, and I got under it, and I dropped it. And he immediately, in front of everyone, just started yelling and screaming and berating me. It was absolutely crushing and embarrassing to my eight-year-old self. And I never wanted to experience that again. And when the time came for the next practice, I told my mom, I'm not going to practice and I'm in tears. And finally she asked and got through all my tears of what had happened. And I I told her what had happened. I said, I'm not going to practice. I'm never going to practice again. And what came out of my mouth, I still remember to this day, what came out of my mouth was hate-filled In this phrase, I'm going to blow his face into outer space. (laughs) Now, I remember that so well still to this day because of a couple reasons. One, it was like, whoa, that just came out of me. And at the same time, I was like, well, that was pretty good. I actually rhymed. (laughs) Yeah. And so so I actually, because I was so proud of myself and this, this hate-filled kind of, I'm going to give it to him, and I, I said it a couple times, I'm going to blow his face into outer space. <laughs> it's one of those moments where, you know, th- that's 37 years ago, and I, still rem- I can still remember where I was in the living room, through my tears, with my mom, saying that phrase. It was one of those moments that stuck with me. And I think we've all had times like that, haven't we? where somebody has done something to us and what comes out of us is this this feeling, this desire for retaliation, for, for getting even, for getting revenge. It's a desire that, that we human beings have deep within us when we are wronged, 
We want to cause pain to those who have caused us pain. We want to cause harm to those who have caused us harm. Without this, I would say there would be a lot less movies and books to read, movies to watch and books to read, because how many storylines are somebody did something wrong and the whole plot is we're going to get back at that person and make this right. It's within us. It's the natural response. But we must understand that it is a response that comes from our sinful nature, from our flesh, and that it is not a desire that is in line with the way of the kingdom of God. Followers of Jesus have a different and a better way to respond. And as Christians, especially these days in the United States that we live in, we are grappling, Christians seem to be grappling more with this shift of no longer being kind of the center of culture to where the church is now being and Christians are now being pushed to the, to the edges of culture. And as that is happening and will continue to happen, opposition grows. And so I believe it's extremely important for us to, to wrestle with how do we handle it when others cause us harm? When others oppose us, when others cause us pain, when wrongs are done to us. And if we are calling ourselves followers of Jesus, then we must follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is to respond in love. What does this look like? What is this way? Well, the way of Jesus is really seen in these, this passage in two ways. The first is do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Verse 38, again, you have heard, Jesus said, that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is a concept, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, comes from the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. The Ten Commandments laid out this basic framework, and then the rest of the laws we read it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy give prescribed ways to carry those laws out. It's important to know this. And it's important to understand what Jesus was doing in saying this. You have heard that it was said. Is that this was to be carried out by the judges of Israel. And so in making this statement, Jesus is both bringing to light what had been the teaching of the day. But he was also affirming, because it is scriptural and in the law, that he is affirming this kind of justice within its right place. And that is in the judicial system. And so it's important for us to understand that it was the judges of Israel who were to follow these laws and to actually carry out justice. These laws were laws of what was called retributive justice, retribution. And it set the boundaries and the framework for what this looked like. So our tendency is if you hit me once, I'm going to want to hit you twice. And if I hit you twice, you're going to not want to stop at hitting me twice. You're going to want to hit me three or four times. And it just gets, it escalates. And so the law was given to be able to get boundaries for Israel's judges 
to be able to say, if an eye was hurt, then an eye is the highest level of retribution that could come. If a tooth was lost, then the highest level was a tooth being lost. It could not go beyond that. It had to equal what was done. And so these were the parameters that God had given so that justice could be carried out. It had to equal, the response had to equal the crime. And Jesus affirms this. Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 13 when he talks about the fact and the role of government, that it is the role of government and things like police and civil rulers to care for justice, to reward you when you do well, and to punish you when you don't. And so it is this space that this concept of eye for eye and tooth for tooth existed within the law of Moses. But the teachers of the law of the day had kind of changed it. And this is why Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Because the rabbis and the teachers of the law had changed it to not just mean within the judicial system, but in your everyday interactions one with another. In personal relationship. In other words, when you were wronged, instead of taking it to the, the judges for justice to be done, you could now take matters into your own hands. You could make justice. You could make wrongs right. When the law said, take it to the judges, and these are the boundaries, it was not to be taken personally. It was to be taken to a higher authority. So within this, Jesus then says in verse 39, don't, I affirm this in the judicial system and according to the law, but not in interpersonal relationships. But when it comes to personal relationships, Jesus says, but I tell you, generosity, not retaliation, is the way of the kingdom. Verse 39 goes on to say, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Instead of resisting and retaliating against an evil person, Jesus demands generosity, and he gives several examples. The first one is this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this right cheek idea is if I am going to hit somebody in the right cheek, I am going to do it in a backhanded way. In, the, in Jesus' day, this was not just about hitting a person. It was using the backhand. It was also an insult. It was not just physical striking. There was insult, a backhanded slap to the cheek. And so Jesus is saying, if someone insults you and hits you on the, the, on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. So as he hits you and insults you, Instead of retaliating, turn to him the other cheek and let him hit you on the other. He goes on to say, and if someone wants, or if someone strikes you on the, on the cheek, turn to the other also. And if someone wants to sue you, verse 40, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The tunic was like an outer garment, usually lightweight, sleeveless, could be pulled over and would go down to a person's knee, and usually had a belt around. So this was just like an everyday basic garment. And Jesus says, if someone wants to take your tunic, let him have it. And give him also your cloak. The cloak was the heavier garment. It was 
what we would today kind of have as an outer coat to be able to keep warm on cold days, heavier garment to be able to put on. Jesus says, if someone wants to take your tunic, give it to him. If someone wants to take, take it, not only give it to him, but also give him your cloak. If someone also, verse 41, forces you to go one mile, don't just stop at one mile. Say, let's go two. In verse 42, if someone asks you to give to them, do not turn away from the one who wants what they're asking you to give, but also be willing to let them borrow from you. When asked, freely give and let others borrow. Friends, when you hear that, if you're anything like me, you hear it and go, I don't know about that. Because it's not natural. It's not the normal human way. It's very difficult to live like this. Everything in us wants to defend. Everything in us wants to retaliate. Everything in us wants to fight, not to be taken advantage of. Retaliation only amplifies the tension. Generosity diffuses the situation. Some may argue that you shouldn't be a doormat. You shouldn't just let people take advantage of you. And some will say that that's what Jesus is is doing. That Jesus is causing us to be doormats. And I would push back on that in in this way. A doormat is someone who just sits back and, and just gets pushed around. But as someone who actively pursues generosity and not retaliation, that is active strength. To have the wherewithal within you to when someone smacks you backhanded and insults you, to have the strength within you to stand and to resist punching them and letting them hit, that is strength. To have someone take your outer garment, when you say, that's mine, I want that, that is mine, and then to be able to say, not only will I let you have that, but let me give you another piece a heavier, even more valuable piece of clothing. That is not being a doormat. That is strength. When someone says, walk with me a mile and you don't want to, and you still go with them and you say, hey, why don't we go another one? If you want to go another one, I'll go another one with you. That is not being a doormat. That is strength. And when someone says, hey, give me something, and you say, sure, is there anything you need to borrow as well? That is not being a doormat. That is mustering everything within you to be strong and not retaliate. If we take it that way, the person who retaliates is actually the weak one. The person who resists and practices generosity is the strong one. The ways of the kingdom are completely upside down from the ways that we think. We think generosity and not retaliating is weak. But Jesus says that's not 
generosity and not retaliation is actually strength. My youth pastor played basketball in college at small Bible college that he went to and, and he was the best defensive player on his basketball team so he always got the best offensive player on the other team. And the other team had a guy who was really good and could really score a lot of points in the midst of a game and so the first time that they played this player was just scoring all over the place and part of his game was as soon as he would score to the guy who was defending him, he would just talk trash. Ah, oh, all day, you don't got anything. I'm gonna take you all day. You're going down, it can't stop me. Get used to it. This is the way it's gonna be all game. And what that would do is then that would get the defender all mad and he'd be like, I'm gonna show you and then he'd try harder and then he'd still get scored on and he'd get more angry and more. Before you knew it, that defender was completely taken out of his game. Part of that guy's game was to mess with people's heads. So the first time, in the first game, it worked. So my youth pastor recounted that the next time they played him, he decided to take a different tactic. He decided that he was going to compliment him. So the first time down, the guy got the ball, scored on him really easily, all day, you can't stop me. And my youth pastor said, wow, that was a great shot, nice move. He ran down, next time guy got the ball, went to score. He scored again, started talking trash again. Wow, you're going to have to teach me that move after. That was a really good move. Next time he scored, man, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. You are just too good for me. You know, that guy, my youth pastor said, had the rest of the game, this terrible game. He usually was scoring over 20 points a game and didn't get anywhere near that because so much of his game, he got fueled by getting other people riled up. And when my youth pastor didn't get riled up at all, it made him get all riled up and he got frustrated and took him completely out of his game. Retaliation or generosity. Jesus demands generosity, not Retaliation. In this, ultimately, we have to trust that God is going to work these wrongs committed against us out. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, he says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's teaching is very similar to Jesus's, isn't it? He says it's not the person who has been wronged's job to avenge. Whose job is it to avenge? It's God's. God says it is my job to avenge. He's the judge. We are not. And so if we take what Paul is saying, putting ourselves in a place of retaliation is really putting ourselves in the place 
of God. Generosity and overcoming evil with good is a trust-filled action. It's a trust-filled, faith-filled action to believe that the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, is superior to the way of the world. This approach requires that, above all else, we love. Above all else, we love. Who do we love? We love our neighbors, and we love our enemies. Verse 43 and 44, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The rabbis and the teachers of the day were teaching to love your neighbor. What's very interesting is, is in that passage that is quoted and in that you have heard that it was said, it comes along from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it says, not love your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. The rabbis of the day were leaving that part out. Love your neighbor as yourself, leaving it out. And in addition, they were teaching that was good and okay to hate your enemy. So think about this for a minute. If you are saying love your neighbor and not even as yourself, the highest way to love someone else is to love them at the equal level that you would love and care for yourself. So even by leaving this out of leaving out as yourself, the Rabbis and the teachers of the law are basically saying, loving yourself is chief. That's the most important thing. Then you love your neighbor. That's below that. If you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself, and then you can go ahead by all means and hate your enemy. And so Jesus begins to bring this down because when asked, who is your neighbor? He talks later in the book of Matthew about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is this. Everyone, even the person that you don't like, even the person that is not like you, everyone is your neighbor. So love everyone. And if we are to look at it from a scriptural perspective, love everyone as yourself, including your enemy. If your neighbor is everyone, then even your enemy is one that you are to love. Jesus' teaching radically opposed the norm. Instead of hating your enemy, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Some manuscripts even have bless those who harm you, do good to those who come against you and love all people, not just the ones that you get along with. This idea of love 
in the way that Jesus teaches it as well, that the original hearers would have understood would have been completely opposed to everything that they heard additionally in just the idea of love. In first century Israel where Jesus was, the people would have been familiar with the concepts of love as friendship. You, are, you love someone that you're a friend with. It's a brotherly kind of love. They were familiar with a sexual kind of love in a marriage relationship, and they would have been uh, familiar with a love that would have been in a family relationship. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, those kinds of family relationships. They would have been well aware of love in those categories. But there was a new word, a word that is used here that the original hearers would not have had a big concept for, and that word is agape. Agape is a totally different kind of love. Those other kinds of love are, I show you love and I get something in return. Agape love is a completely different kind of love. Agape love is the kind of love that is for the good of the recipient only and does not have any expectation coming back to me. It's about the recipient. It's not about the giver. Commentator Michael Green says this, that at Jesus' day, the word agape, prior to Jesus coming on the scene, in the Greek language, the word agape was hardly ever used. In the scriptures, when it talks about love and it talks about the love of God, it talks about loving one another, the word that is primarily used is agape. That in the coming of Jesus, it's as if there was a whole different kind of love that was inserted into the language and into the practice of the world. A love that doesn't have anything to do with me, but has everything to do with the one that I'm showing love to, the recipient. The way of the kingdom, as Jesus was teaching it, would have been radically different from what they were always used to. It wasn't about me, it was about others. This kind of love, a love for enemies, certainly has nothing that I'm gonna get out of it. It is all about you. Jesus then goes on to say this. That those who follow him are not to be like everyone else. Verses 46 and 47, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus reminds his listeners that they need to be different in love. And he uses two groups of people that stood very much in contrast to first century Jews. Tax collectors and pagans. Tax collectors love those who love them. Pagans greet others who are like them. And Jesus is saying, if you just love those who love you, 
you're no different than the tax collectors. And if you just greet those who think like you and are like you, you're just like the pagans. Now, for us, we read this and we're like, oh, tax collectors, pagans. Understand that these were two of the most hated and despised groups of people for a first century Jew. They would have absolutely reviled at hearing Jesus say this. At Jesus saying, if you love like that, you're no different than the people that you hold in very low esteem. The people that you think aren't worthy of the love of God. I wonder if Jesus was standing here this morning, if he was the one physically giving the message and not me, and I was sitting down there, I wonder what groups of people he would say. I don't think he would say tax collectors. And I don't think he would say pagans. I'm not real sure, but think through this with me for a moment. Observers say that we live in a culture that today is siloed or tribal. When they say siloed, think about the great Midwest and you have corn silos or grain silos. You have these big metal structures that house either corn or grain or soybeans or whatever it is. And these are all distinct from each other. And so imagine people being siloed. <laughs> a group here and a group here. Or imagine tribes of people, if that silo is a hard one. Imagine different tribes of people. A tribe of people here and a tribe of people here. Observers of our culture will say that our culture is so siloed. We have Republicans and we have Democrats, right? <laughs> siloed. We have conservatives and we have liberals. Siloed. We have pro-choice and we have pro-life. We have those who believe one thing about marriage and sexuality and another group who believes another thing about marriage and sexuality. <laughs> we have one group that's woke <laughs> And another group that, who, whatever you call that other group, I don't know what that is. We have Steelers and Ravens, Bengals, Browns, whoever you hate the most in the AFC North. You get the point, right? We have these groups, and they're very well and very clearly defined in our culture. And the thing about these groups is these groups stay very close to each other. And they usually talk amongst each other, and they usually preach to one another, and everybody within the silos is like, yeah, 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 yeah. And both sides, both, both silos, both tribes do it. And they're in there, and they're like, yeah, we agree, and get riled up. But you know what they never do? They never come out of the silos, and they never talk amongst each other to listen and to engage what they do is they yell across each other. Once they're done like riling each other up and getting each other supported, then they start yelling at each other from both sides of the silo. You've seen this, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So what would Jesus say if he were here this morning? Whichever silo you 
may find yourself in. And I'm going to guess that in a group of people this size and those who are listening online now or during the week, that there are going to be different people that are going to find themselves probably in different silos. And so whatever silo you might find yourself in, I would imagine Jesus would say something like this. If you love those who are in your silo and love you, what reward will you get? Even the people in the other silo, they do that. And if you greet only those who are in your silo and you just hang out with those people in your silo, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the people in the other silo do that? I think Jesus would say something like that to us this morning. And so I ask you, are you in relationship with and are you agape loving, loving others, not for what you can get out of it, but for their good and their benefit? Are you agape loving someone else that would not fit in your silo of choice? Do you have anyone in your life that doesn't fit in your silo? And if there isn't anyone in your silo, then hear what Jesus is saying. You're just like everyone else. That's a hard word to hear, isn't it? If we just hang out with the people that agree with us and we can yell and and then yell across the... And we don't love and are in relationship with the people with the other side, then Jesus is saying we're just like the people we don't like. We're just like them. Because they love each other. They greet each other. Instead, the way of the kingdom that Jesus is telling us is that we should love like our Father. Verse 45 and 48 says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, our Heavenly Father loves both the evil and the good. He loves both the righteous and the unrighteous. And he demonstrates this love, Jesus says, by causing the sun to rise in the morning and the rain to fall on everyone equally. But you may say, yeah, 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 that's true. But he does love us differently. He loves those of us who have come to Jesus and are in a relationship with him and are seeking to abide in a relationship with him or seeking to obey his ways and be about the things of God. We're in a relationship with Christ. So he treats us differently. And I would say yes. But don't forget this. That God sent Jesus as the ultimate display of his agape love 
Not when you were loving him. Not when you were righteous and good. But when you were an enemy, a sinner, separated from him. When Jesus came to agape love us, it was when we were the enemies of God, if you have received Christ as your Savior. And so this whole idea of, yeah, it's a different relationship, yes, but the relationship, the offer still remains for every person who has not come to know Jesus. And if you're listening today and you have not come to that place of receiving Jesus, the offer still remains for you today. Sometimes I fear that we talk more about the judgment of God than about the salvation, redemption work of God. There's a day when the judgment and the wrath of God will come. But Jesus said in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave me, his only son, that whoever would believe in me would not perish but would have everlasting life. And then he says this, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, because the world, it's already condemned, but to save the world. Friends, if our focus is on, oh, the wrath of God is coming on the enemies, we've missed the heart of God in this season of history. Because the season of history is God is after, running after, pursuing, wooing, lost people who we might consider the enemies of God so that they're not enemies anymore. He's bringing and wanting to woo them into relationship. He is loving, he is pursuing who we might consider the enemies of God. So friends, don't jump to the end of the story yet. We're not there yet. The wrath of God is not being poured out yet. We are in the time when the salvation of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the pursuit of God by his spirit is on the move. And if we're more focused on the judgment of God and the wrath of God coming, we are missing our season of mission because God is calling those who know him already to be agents of reconciliation, declaring that today is the day of salvation, not today is the day of judgment. It's not here yet. And that's his job anyway. Our job is to declare today, today is the day of salvation. Come to our God. Come to Jesus. He has made the way. And if we can get out of our silos long enough to get around people that aren't in our silos, we may just have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. But if we're hanging out in our silos, most likely we don't think that the people in our silo really need him. Jesus concludes it with this. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was trained in an evangelism tool called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you may have been trained in that. And if you were, part of that was using this verse to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, to say that all have sinned and we need to be perfect and no one can be perfect. And that is absolutely true. But I would argue that that's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is, 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to be perfect in love as your heavenly father is. Your father is perfect in love. And people who follow the way of Jesus, who are followers of his, our call is to be perfect in the way that we love even our enemies because that's how our father loves. We are to be people who respond in love. Wrap up with this. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says that in his mind, the greatest example, or one of the greatest examples of this, in living this way, in this eye for an eye, love for enemies kind of passage, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thinking about the unjust sufferings that he had to endure. And at King's funeral, Dr. Benjamin Mays listed some of the ways that he endured unjust suffering. Mays said this, If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threat of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Stott goes on to say one of, his, one of King's most moving sermons was based off of Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, and it was entitled, Loving Your Enemies, while being written in a Georgia jail. Wrestling with the questions why and how Christians are to love, King described how hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. And is just as injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. But above all, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. For it has both creative and redemptive power. He then went on to apply his theme to the racial crisis in the United States. And for over three centuries, American Negroes had suffered oppression frustration, and discrimination. But King and his friends were determined to meet hate with love. Stott wraps it up with this statement. When they did, they would then win both their freedom and their oppressor's freedom. And as King said, our victory will be a double victory our freedom, and theirs. The way of the kingdom is love. The way of the kingdom is generosity, not retaliation. Above all else, love. Do we believe that the power of God's love can overcome? 
to be people who respond in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your love. The call to love like you, Abba Father, is a high call. The call of Jesus to respond with generosity and not retaliation is a high call. And I would believe that this kind of love is not possible on our own. It has to be from you. And so above all, Father, would you fill us with your love? That we would respond in love. God, I pray for any here or listening online today who may not have encountered the love of the Father through Jesus. May the wooing of your spirit draw draw them to yourself. And Father, may those of us who have received your love through Christ, may you empower us by your spirit out of the love we receive to be people who respond above all else in love. Trusting the ways of your kingdom, that they are good and that they do produce fruit for the glory of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.